0: Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. Uh, before we get into the sermon, let's pray together. Jesus, uh, we bring ourselves and everything that we come through from this week Uh, From this morning, Uh, everything that makes up the context, we're here, and we just bring it to you with open hands. And we pray that you'd come in your peace, and that you'd meet us. Thank you that you are here with us. We pray that you come and you'd be speaking to us, Lord. Thank you that you are trustworthy and true. And so we bless you because you are good so, Jesus, we want to hear from you. So we pray that you'd open our ears to see, or to hear you and our eyes to see you. And thank you. Uh, thank you for your kingdom. And so we bless you because you're good. Amen. So we're continuing on our series on God in the unseen. And in this series, what we've been talking about is what do we do with especially the passages in the Old Testament where Jesus isn't named where it's confusing sometimes, where uh, stuff's happening that we don't expect to happen. And so last week we talked about the first uh, two chapters of Jonah, and this week we're talking about the the second two chapters of Jonah. And just to, to pick up where we were, um, again, there's two different streams of interpretation and thought about the book of Jonah. One of these streams of interpretation is that this is a historical account of an event that really happened, that there was a guy named Jonah, which we know uh, outside of the book of Jonah, that there's a Jonah son of Amittai, but whether this Jonah actually then had everything that happened in our story, or if it's a parable written later on about, the, uh, about this event, uh, holding up a mirror of who we are, we don't know. Because the second stream of interpretation is, it's not a historical event, it's a parable, there's elements of satire, there's joking happening here, there's people doing the opposite of what you'd expect. And so the question is, um, what do you do? If it's a parable, can we trust it? Well, Jesus' primary way of teaching was through parables, right? Could we trust Jesus in his parables? Yes. I don't care, to be honest, if it's a parable or a real story. Those are not really the questions of the text of what do we do with this. Instead, it's who's God revealed to be and what is he trying to say to us? So it's totally cool if you want to think of this as a historical event, and it's totally cool if you want to think of this as a parable. Both are perfectly valid ways of reading the text. And so what I don't want us to get lost in here is the weeds of it all. When did this happen? Did this really happen? What kind of whale was it? Or sea monster? Uh, apparently someone came to me last week and was like, I read a study and it was a whale shark. Okay. That's fine. It, does, it, it really doesn't matter. Because if it's a story, it doesn't take away the fact that our God is a God who works miracles, does it? No. The basis of our faith is always the resurrection. And the resurrection is the greatest miracle. First of all, God became human, which should blow our minds every time we think about it. And then God died. God stayed dead for three days. And then God rose again. That miracle is the basis of our faith. Not whether somebody survived in a whale or not. But the whale does, or surviving in the belly of the sea monster does point to that, right? Like we talked about last week. And so last week we talked about Jonah descending down further and further. So we use this picture here. Yeah, that one there of uh, ancient Hebrew cosmology. So how they viewed the world and what it was like. So God is at the highest, the mountain of God and at the bottom of Sheol and around it swims Tanin, the sea monster. And so Jonah starts off on land and continues to move towards water, and he gets deeper and deeper. We read over and over again that he descended, he went lower, he descended, and eventually he ends up in Sheol in the belly of the sea monster. And God uses a faithful sea monster to take him to dry land. And over and over again in the story, what we discover is that God, or sorry, the characters in this story are doing the opposite we expect. We see it a rebellious prophet and we see faithful pagan sailors. We see a sea monster who is isn't chaos, but is obedient to God. And this ends up with a sea monster spitting out Jonah onto dry land, which I have a picture of in case you're wondering what it looked like. Apparently it's a koi fish. So this is from uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is one of the best versions of Jonah I've read in a kid's story. I don't really know if this is kid's story appropriate when you read the whole story, but that's why they often stop. So one of the other ones I read this week, it ends with, and then the sea monster or fish or whatever they called it, spat Jonah up. And that was the end. And then this one goes a little further. So after three days, he spits him up and then God says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, yes, yay. And then he says, "Um, even though you've run far from God, he can't stop loving you, which isn't actually what Jonah says at all. So run to him so he can forgive you. Jonah never offers forgiveness in the story. And the people respond and do what uh, God says. And then Jonah, it says, this is beautiful. It says, they learn to do what God said and they stop running away from him, just like Jonah. Now, if you've read the Jonah story, you know it doesn't end in this neat and tidy bow. But we like our stories to end in neat and tidy bows. And so this is where it ends with everybody's happy. Look at Jonah, he's smiling. He's got some sort of like Superman pose going on here. But let's pick up where we left off. So we're gonna go in Jonah chapter three. It says, then the word of God came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give to you. Now this is verbatim what God said at the start of Jonah, which means Jonah is given a second chance here. The, the Hebrew, when it talks about the belly of the sea monster is actually the language of a womb. So Jonah here has been reborn and his being reborn, he's back, given his his message again. Go and tell the people of Nineveh to repent. Give them this message. And uh, what's missing in the Hebrew trans or the English translation? Of the Hebrew is when it says "go to the great city," uh, it's actually "arise and go." Which, if we think about it from that that map, if he's at the descended, now he's arising. So Jonah's gone from the depths. He's being brought up by the sea monster. He's on land, but now he's moving upwards. And Jonah actually goes this time. We read Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, which sounds a lot like God loves you, He'll forgive you, run to Him, right? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no option for forgiveness here, is there? It's just, you've got 40 days, you'll be overthrown. Now, Nineveh, to catch up where we were last week, is the capital of Assyria. And Assyria were the enemies of the Israelites and the people of Judah. Assyria ended up destroying the city of Judah. And they used very despicable ways of uh, showing their power over you. Um, You can read about it in the Old Testament. There's kids here, so I don't want to tell some of those things they do, but it involved farming tools and um, yeah, it was nasty. They were terrible people. This is uh, a terrible army that took over most of the world. They were uh, the step before Rome sort of thing. These were enemies. These were hated people. And so Jonah, you'd think as a prophet, would be happy to go to Nineveh and say, in 40 days, you'll be overthrown. Now, the interesting thing about the word overthrown here is there's a dual meaning on it. One of them is that it could be destroyed, which is a word we think about. But the other one is it could be changed. So 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, or 40 days and Nineveh will be changed. Let's keep that in tension for a few moments. So we continue reading here. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet uh, relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger, so we will not perish. So last week we talked about how the sailors did the opposite of what's expected. What do we think the capital of the greatest nation at the time would do here? when this random Hebrew from far off away comes strolling, smelling like the inside of fish and proclaiming in 40 days, you'll be overthrown. The expectation is they'd laugh at him. The expectation is they would mock him. Then you think about the king. And uh, if you know anything about ancient history, kings were believed to be the descendants of the gods or God's incarnate. We'd expect them to be like Pharaoh every time that Moses came and said, let my people go and mock him and laugh at him. But instead, what do we read here of the king? He calls a city-wide fast, and I mean, in one of the ridiculous moments of the story, he says even the animals need to fast, so uh, don't let them touch anything, put sackcloth and ash on you and on your animals, which this should really get, us laughing almost at this moment. Uh, I imagine the original readers would hear this and laugh. Like, this is an outrageous thing, but he's saying, this is how severe it is. We've got to, we've got to stop and we've got to fast because maybe this God who's going to overthrow us, maybe he'll relent. Now, an interesting thing here is throughout the book of Jonah, leading up to this, the word for God has been Yahweh, or when you read it in the, in the English translation, capital L-O-R-D. This is the personal name of God. This is a name that God gives Moses. He says, this is who I am. There's relational connection here. And throughout the book, every time God's mentioned, leading up to Nineveh, it's the Lord. But once they enter into Nineveh, once Jonah gets there, he's now referred to Elohim. Now Elohim in the Hebrew can refer to God, but can also refer to the gods it can refer to uh, angels, it can re- refer to spiritual beings. So Jonah goes from this deeply personal word for God, and now it's this ambivalent creator God. I wonder if that was intentional on Jonah's part. He gets the place of his enemy, and instead of saying, hey, just so you know, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, which Jonah says earlier when he's talking to the sailors, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, he sees what you're doing and he wants you to change. Instead, he gets there and he's like, a god is going to overthrow your city. You wonder if that's intentional. But what we see happening is the Ninevites do what's not expected of them, but what God expects of his people. We read in Joel 2 this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may yet turn or relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings, and drink offerings for the Lord your God. That's what God expects from his people when he sends a prophet. But what we read over and over again in the Old Testament is when God sends his prophets like Jeremiah, they get laughed at. They get mocked. They don't get listened to. But here we have the most evil nation in his capital hearing the message. That's really five words in the Hebrew. And they do what's expected of the people of God. It's brilliant. And then the passage continues. When God saw what they did, and you'll notice that's God, not Yahweh. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. It works. God doesn't send the calamity. Nineveh does what Israel's expected to do, and God responds how he says he will to Israel. Jonah's got to be pretty happy in this moment, you think, right? Jonah's been given this message, go to the most terrible city on earth and get them to change. And so he goes to the most terrible city on earth and he gets them to change. What do we read about Jonah? But Jonah, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, "Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to live than to die." <laughs> For some reason, that didn't make the kids' Bible. I don't know. Every time I've heard Jonah preached, it's, he's the reluctant prophet who runs away because he's, it's too hard of a, cha- a task. He's afraid of what the people will think of him. He might get killed. This is a hard challenge. That's not why he didn't go. He didn't go because he knows exactly who his God is and he doesn't want what his God does because he knows Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is the key passage of the Old Testament. It's this moment where God has given the Ten Commandments to Moses and he's taken it down and the people are worshiping a a calf and he smashes the Ten Commandments and he goes back up on the mountain. He's like, what should we do? And God says, let me show you who I am. And God passes in front of Moses. And then this incredible point says for the first time what God says he's like instead of us exp- er, us wondering what God is like, if that makes sense. So these aren't people's thoughts about what God is like. This is who God says he is. He says, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished as he punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. So it says God is a God of justice, punishing sin, but to the third and fourth. And God is a God of blessing and forgiving to the thousands. So let's go back to that last verse. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And then he says, The God who relents him from sending calamity, which sounds like Joel, which Joel is also talking about, he doesn't even mention the forgiveness part of who God is. I knew what you were like. I knew your grace and your mercy, and I didn't want it for them. I knew that if you sent me to Nineveh, they'd hear the message and they'd change. That's why I didn't want to go. And so he's so angry that he wants to die. But the Lord replies, is it right for you to be angry? Let's continue on in Jonah 4, verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. And there he made for himself a shelter and he sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Because remember, there's 40 days and then he'll be overthrown. So he's like, okay. So they've started by fasting and repenting. But Let's see what happens in 40 days. And then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So it starts off by saying, Jonah went to a place east of the city. Now the movement of east in the Old Testament is a clue hearkening back to Cain. Actually, even before Cain to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve leave and they go east of Eden. And then we see Cain and his sin moving even further east from Eden because of his, in the Hebrew, heat anger, which is the same thing that Jonah's got here. He's got heat anger. Like this is anger that's bubbling up and taking over. Your face is getting red and puffy. Your eyes are starting to get glazed over, and you do things you regret. And so Jonah's moved east. He's moving away from God just like he moved down last week, now he's moving east. And he makes himself a shelter, and he sits and waits, and God in his mercy provides a leafy plant. And it says in the English, to ease his discomfort, the Hebrew is to deliver him from his evil. So God provides a leafy plant to provide shade to help him cool down. God's like, I know what you're going to do in your evil and in your anger. So let's just let you chill here. We read Jonah's happy about the plant. Now, another adventure missing in the point uh, comes at the the footnote. If you've got the NIV, it says the precise identification of this plant is uncertain. (laughs) This is what happens when you get too literal with the passage. You start with, what kind of fish was it? And the next thing is, what kind of plant can provide a leaf so big that this man can be covered? Maybe it's a gourd. Maybe it's a palm or something like that. The reality is, either way, God makes a leaf grow up overnight, big enough to shade a man. It doesn't matter what kind of plant this is. Who cares? But we get stuck in weird things sometimes. So the passage continues. God's provided this leaf to help him out. And then we read in verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And the sun rose, and God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, so he grew faint. he wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, it is. And he said, I'm so angry, I wish it. Excuse me, I wish I were dead. Jonah's happy about one whole thing in this whole book, which is a plant that's exclusively there for him to protect him. But he doesn't allow it to deliver him from evil. Instead, his heat anger just rises and rises. And so God provides a worm. Now, in my head, I, I go back at this moment to the Israelites with the manna in the wilderness. They were to take enough for the day. And sometimes they'd take enough for a couple days going, I've got to have enough. And so what did God do on the second day? He'd send worms to eat that manna. Here, he's given a plant, he's resting, he's happy, and then God sends a worm to eat that plant and it withers. And then God sends a, a wind to blow away his shelter and the sun to hit him. And Jonah yet again wishes for death. This is not what you expect the prophet of God to do. Especially, again, let's go back. Everything he said was going to happen, happened. They relented. And God changed, or they repented and God relented. They changed their ways. This is like the most effective prophet in all of Jewish history with just five words. And yet he'd rather be dead. And so it ends Like this, but the Lord said, "You've been concerned about the plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I have not have much or have uh, concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals?" God sends the plant almost like a parable to Jonah, something to trap him with. Like think about uh, Nathan. Uh, going to David the king. David has stolen Bathsheba, has had her husband killed, and God's challenging him on this. And he sends Nathan the prophet and says, there was once a man who had a neighbor and the neighbor had a sheep. And the man who was very rich wanted to have a, a meal for his friends, but he stole his neighbor's sheep and he killed it and everybody ate it. And David's like, oh, that man should be killed. And he's like, you're that man. And here God sends a leaf the man, something he doesn't tend, something that grows and then dies. And he's so angry about that. And God's like, yeah, you didn't even care about that though. And you're so upset. I care about these people and these animals. And that's why I relented. And what does Jonah do in response? Well, there's no verse 12. We don't know. Jonah's left at the outside of the city, East, wishing for death. We don't know how he responds how life can be often unresolved. We hope for this upward trajectory that keeps going and going. We get better and better. but often it's a meandering story where we move up and down, east and west or wherever. And Jonah's story isn't all upwards, as much as the storybook Bible wants you to think. I don't have to run away from God's love anymore. No, Jonah wants to run away from God's love. He wants to be dead, which is as far away from God in the Hebrew understanding as you can be. Or it's like the parable of the prodigal sons that Jesus tells. The son runs away with the father's uh, inheritance, tells the dad he wishes he was dead, goes away. You guys know the story. Squanders everything. A famine hits and he goes, he's eating pig food and goes, I'd be better off living with my father and being his servant. And so he goes home. And the older brother sees this and he's eating. He goes, but I, I've done the right thing the whole time. And my brother who hasn't, you're throwing a party for him. And the father invites him into the party. But we never know what happens to the older son. Jesus told that story uh, to the Pharisees as a mirror for them. Hey, you're like that older brother. What are you gonna do? What if this story is a mirror for us? What if we're supposed to look at Jonah and go, wait, how am I like Jonah? So throughout this series, we're going to be talking, or we've been talking about Jesus as being unseen. And so where is Jesus in these stories? And so here's some of the things I've seen of uh, Jesus. And this, once again, just like last week, Jesus is the word of God who came to Jonah, like John 1 talks about. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. Second of all, like last week, Jesus is the one who is for all people. He's for the Ninevites. He's for the people of God, too, represented in Jonah. It's like that that story with Joshua. Uh, he's about to go into battle, and he sees the angel of the Lord come, and he goes, whose side are you on? Are you for us or against us? He's like, I'm not on either. I'll help you today, but I'm not the God who picks sides. God's for all people, right? Even the calling back to Abraham, was that he would be a, a light to all the nations and all nations will be blessed through you. Next, Jesus is the God of second chances, right? Actually, you could go beyond second and thirds and fourths in Jonah's story. God is the God of unlimited chances, it seems. He keeps reaching out, forgiving, blessing. You Think about where Jesus talks about how many times you should forgive somebody. He says seven times, like even if your, your friend comes for forgiveness seven times a day, you forgive. Which if somebody is coming to you seven times in one day, asking for forgiveness for the same thing, at a certain point, unless they're your toddler, you're assuming they don't actually mean it, right? God is the God of unlimited chances. Next, he's the one who delivers us from our evil. Just as he provided that, that leaf to, to cool Jonah off in hopes that Jonah's heat, anger would lower, God's constantly delivering us from our evil, which is why Jesus teaches us, deliver us from evil. Come on. Jesus is the one who partners with us. God could have easily just gone to Nineveh himself, right? He could have given that king a dream, a vision. He could have appeared there, gone as the angel of the Lord, whatever he wants to do. But God in his grace and mercy and compassion always partners. Just like Ben talked about a couple weeks ago with Moses, or just like Shalina's is going to talk about next week with Joseph. God constantly uses people, just like he does with you. He's placed you exactly where he has so that you can be people of good news. He's placed you exactly where he has so that you can be people who extend mercy and compassion, who speak the goodness of God. Next, Jesus is the one who was tested for 40 days. Remember the the Ninevites are tested for 40 days to see what will happen, which we actually don't even know at the end of that story either. Jesus, too, was tested for 40 days in the wilderness. And then this, this is the big one. Jesus is the one who loves his enemies. We read about Jonah hating his enemies so much so that he'd rather die than see God forgive them. That seems to be the way of our world, doesn't it? To hate your enemies, to not want to show mercy and compassion to someone who disagrees with you. If you if you don't believe me, there's this thing called Twitter. It's almost dead. But if you go on there, it doesn't take long to see people polarizing from one another. And on one side, we hate you because of this. And on the other side, well, we hate you because of that. Or you go to the grocery store and see the same thing. I don't need to explain to you how polarized we are, right? We know how easy it is to hate our enemies. Our world lives in the way of Jonah. Our world does not love forgiving our enemies or our families either. But we read this. Jesus says this, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. A child of a father is expected to look like their father and act like their father. And so he says, if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, then you'll be like your father. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And at the end of it, which I should tell you, the story of the Good Samaritan's, This guy goes down the road, he gets mugged and left for dead. A couple religious people walk by, they see him, and it's very nuanced, but there's reasons why they don't go and help him, and so they walk away. And then a Samaritan, which is Second Temple Judaism, so the time of Jesus, the worst enemy of the Jews, like the people that they just hate the most, they're Assyrians. And it's a Samaritan who goes and helps the man. And the parable of the Good Samaritan ends with this, where Jesus says, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell out of the hands of the robbers? The expert in the the law says the man who had mercy on him. He should have said the Samaritan, but he can't even bring himself to say that. Then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Love your enemies. Or on the cross, Jesus putting his money where his mouth is, says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Friends, our world calls us to live into the way of Jonah. To not forgive, to hold back mercy, to not bless. But the way of Jesus comes into that and challenges it. And so we need to live more and more into the way of Jesus, living into this counterformation, Learning what it means to be people of blessing, learning what it means to be people of mercy, learning what it means to love our enemies and to forgive. Or as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Being formed in the way of Jesus means that we walk in his way, seeking the way of enemy love, seeking to be people of peace in the place of chaos, loving across boundaries, going and doing likewise. And so the message of Jonah, like last week, is that Jesus is revealed to be the God of unending mercy. And as we continue, this week is, and Jonah hates him for it. Then Jesus is revealed to be the God of unending mercy, and Jonah hates him. Jonah would rather be dead than to see his enemies show mercy. Now, like I said before, the story of mercy, the story of mercy, Jonah, the sailors, and the Ninevites should function as a mirror for us. As we look at this story, what are our hearts like? It's really easy to go, "How Jonah is just the worst," but is there part of it goes, "Oh, but I'm just like him. I don't want to show mercy for those people who think those things, who act that way, who come from that place." So will you let Jesus show you the mirror of your life? One of the challenges of this passage is, who is it that you don't want God to show mercy to? Because mercy can be a really tricky thing, can't it? You want it for those you love, but there's people you don't want mercy to be seen for. Secondly is, who do we need to to name God and their experience too. Think about Jonah. He goes to Ninevites and God goes from being deeply personal, Yahweh with this whole history, to being this vague, ambiguous Elohim. We all have neighbors who don't know Jesus, who talk about the universe or the force or whatever else. And yet God is constantly at work in their stories. God's constantly at the move. He's constantly calling himself them to himself. Like he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. So your neighbors, whether they know Jesus or not, Are having Jesus moments often? And where is Jesus calling you to go into their stories and make him seen? Where is Jesus calling you to go into their stories and name what's happening? To take the nameless God and give him a name? I'm going to end with this quote from a guy named Abraham Heschel. He's a, a Jewish rabbi. He says, God's answer to Jonah, stressing the supremacy of compassion, upsets the possibility of looking for rational coherence in God's way with the world. History would be intelligible if God's word were the last word, final and unambiguous like a dogma and unconditional decree. It'd be easier if God's anger came effectively or effective automatically. Once wickedness had reached its full measurement, punishment would destroy it. Yet beyond justice and anger lies a mystery of compassion. God's mercy, what it's saying here, isn't how we'd have it. It's not like there's a system where it stacks up and then mercy runs out. I'm coming to wipe you out instead. Mercy and compassion are a mystery. And so where do you need to embrace the mercy or the mystery of mercy and compassion for yourself? Where do you need God's mercy today? And even though it doesn't make sense that God would have mercy on you yet again, for that thing, for that choice, mystery of mercy says, I still got compassion for you. Where do you need to embrace the mystery and mercy and compassion someone else thank you for tuning into our podcast today to discover more about stony plain alliance church and its ministries visit our website at spaconline.com grace and peace